Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Black Women Amplified, the podcast. Your host, Monica Wisdom Tyson, brings you downloadable conversations that matter to women around the globe. We discuss all things black girl magic, amplify our voices, and transform our challenges into triumphs. Monica calls on her league of extraordinary women to push our boundaries, share their expertise, and stories of personal transformation. Welcome your host of Black Women Amplified, Monica Wisdom Tyson. Hello, Black Women Amplified. How are you doing? This is your girl, Monica Wisdom, and I am so excited that you're here with us today. We have another incredible conversation with a living legend. I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. And I'm telling you, it was impactful, powerful, enlightening, and just all around amazing. There are women who have pioneered the path that we are following. And this is one of those women. And I honestly am thrilled. I tell people all the time, God is my agent. And when she said yes to this conversation, was so, I was in awe of the power of God and I'm in awe of her. The life that she has led has been a remarkable journey. And I promise you, if you listen to the end and you hear her tell her own story, you will understand that anything is possible. But before we get into that, I want to really tell you, thank you. <laughs> thank you for supporting this podcast and please make sure that you visit our newly renovated, redesigned website, blackwomenamplified.com. Yes, I built it myself. And grammar police do not email me, text me, send a pigeon to my house. It is what it is. Because <laughs> y'all be coming at me. But anyway, listen, thank you for sharing, retweeting, telling your friends, texting it to people. Thank you for your messages of encouragement. I really, really appreciated your emails. I read them. And if I don't get back to you, just know that I read it and I will get back to you. But thank you. I really, really appreciate it. This is a labor of love and God has graced me with the ability to have great conversation with phenomenal women. And I'm happy to share it with you week after week after week. Now, listen, <laughs> our next guest has defied gravity. I mean, are you ready for an inspiring woman who has defied the odds to become a best-selling author, an international model, and a successful movie producer? Oh, you won't want to miss this conversation. Deborah Gregory is a powerhouse of creativity and resilience. Her journey began as a child in the foster care system in New York City. But she refused to let her circumstances define her, becoming an international fashion model, strutting across the catwalks of Italy and around the globe. Her passion for fashion led her to opening a boutique in Manhattan, catering to full-figured women. And that's just the beginning of her remarkable journey. Deborah went on to write the best-selling, award-winning series, The Cheetah Girls, which was adapted into three phenomenal movies. She co-produced the movie along with the legendary Whitney Houston, who worked with her to bring these inspiring stories to life. Deborah also is an award-winning contributing writer to Essence Magazine, 
Her work has also been featured in Vibe, More, Heart and Soul, Entertainment Weekly, and Us Weekly magazines. Her pop culture column, Diva Diaries, appeared in Grace Magazine, a publication that appeals to multicultural women. You do not want to miss this empowering conversation with this living legend. So we are going to give Deborah Gregory her flowers that are overdue and well-deserved because she defies gravity. Let me say this with my whole heart. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the extraordinary Deborah Gregory. Hello, Mama Cheetah. Thank you for joining us. Hola, Miss <laughs> M with the wisdom. Hello, 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 hello. You have been giving all the juice off the record button. I said, let me get this on the audio. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. No, darling. it's okay. It's okay. I'm so excited to have you here. You have no idea. Now, I am much older than the Cheetah Girls franchise, but I have been a fan of you for years. And I'm going to tell you why this is a full circle moment later. Yes. Yeah, the essence days. Yeah. The essence days. And even I'm going to tell you the story later, but this is a full circle moment for me. So you were talking about your new journey. Yes. Back to Sexy Curvy. Yes, because I was a runway model at five foot 11. And then I went up to 295 during my time as a writer. So I've seen both sides of the spectrum. And now what appeals is to be in the middle, sexy and curvy. Mm-hmm. Weight, which is very reasonable, the doctor told me, is 180 pounds at five feet 11. That's like perfect, you know. Now, why did you choose surgery over like this weight loss pill that everybody's taking? Because the pill, just so you know, I've been done a lot of research as a writer. The pill is only for someone who needs to lose 40, 50 pounds. Okay. So mine is 100 plus, and that is not for the pill. That is definitely surgery. Mm-hmm. And I've had many people I know have done the Wagovi or shocks. There's three big ones. And that's 40 to 50 pounds. That's different. Okay. And you would not qualify for the surgery if that's all you had to lose. They would not allow you to have the surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was the decision. Well, congratulations. You look amazing, but you've always been beautiful. Thank you. Inside and out. And like I said, I've been a fan of yours. When Cheetah Girls came out, I was 30. <laughs> so oh, I was a bit wow. older. Wow. Yes. But over the lockdown that we all went through in the last couple of years, I did watch the movies. And so every time I feel like going back to my teenage years, I put on the Cheetah Girls movies because it's just fantasy and fun and you're really ahead of your time. So as a 20 years later, you have built this magnificent franchise, 25 books, three movies, 88 city tour, and you did it when nobody was doing it. It wasn't a thing, especially a black woman. How did it begin? To be honest with you, what's even more in terms of a start, I had made from my books. I mean, you're talking dolls that were sold in all the stores. I mean, not believable. Cheetah Girl dolls. Now, the Cheetah Girl dolls, were they through Barbie or they were their uh, own entity? It was a uh, sub-license. Yeah, of course. You know, they look like little versions of me. They're very the same, packaged the same Cheetah Girl dolls, of course. They're beautiful dolls. 
Yes. And what they do is they sublicense through the company, the product. So, you know, there were sunglasses, blue jeans. There was everything imaginable, Cheetah Girls. And then that's what they do, sublicense. And by the way, I'm sure you know that it's all a big gravy train for them. And then, of course, they're not quick to pay. Well, forget it. They don't pay the royalties. That's it. Simple what? as that. Yes. And this has been going on for over 100 years. It's the way the film and TV was set up. Mm-hmm. So the writers, author, I've spoken to several big authors, Alice Walker, Color Purple. The first person who told me about this happened, meaning where's the money, was Olivia Goldsmith, the First Wives Club. Oh, wow. And I was over her house. I was rattled. I didn't know what she meant. And then after, do you know she plastic surgery? She had a chin lipo and she died. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yes, at Manhattan, your <laughs> eye throat on 64th Street, girl. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea. And they just turned her movie into a TV show. Yeah. So, you know, the point being, so I called her agent because I knew. We were, I said, what was she trying to tell me? He said, the royalties, they don't pay that back end 5%. They never pay. You just get what and good luck. And if you're not, and he said, she got nothing up front. You know what? Or whatever. And you're talking about they own the dramatic rights forever to perpetuity. And that's the business model. It's very different. The person who wrote the song owns that publishing. And then all you're doing, whoever you are, TV, you know, commercial, movie, whatever, you're licensing. And so that means after the person, their descendants will be reaping the benefits if it's some, you know, popular song or even right. if it's not popular. The book thing or any dramatic rights property is called underlying it's not a different way and that's that and it's very unfair oh incredibly unfair especially as much money as that franchise or any franchise franchise. and that's the reality of it and you know what are you going to do you know alice walker did sue what what's that got her you know she wrote a book about it the same river twice she wrote a book about what happened Mm. you know she sent me an autographed copy but you could sue and the operations and you will be in court forever and then i think whatever settlement she got she paid the lawyer do you follow right so is it worth it that's the question yeah no it's not worth it and then you're blackballed so this is what we're dealing with so of course you look at the other end because you know the money is not in books as you know Mm -hmm. books is a labor of love it's a prestige thing also 100 percent home run if your book gets turned into a tv or film thing of course Mm-hmm. But the life of the buying of the books is very finite. And then everyone just buys secondhand copies or whatever on Barnes and Nobles, Amazon. So the money is in the TV and film and you're not partaking in that, mm. you know, but you have the prestige and the blah, blah. So that's it. So would you ever open up your own production company so that you could produce your own work? No, because that's a big responsibility. And I love books. Okay. It's my heart. My heart is books. But and then on the other hand, how many people get a book that's made into the movies, the concerts, the videos, the albums, the dolls? That's a one in a million thing. So right. truthfully, if I write something else, it's not going to. What are the chances? So I don't really have to worry about that. thing. But, you know, it does make me sad about how the writer is, you know, exploited in mm-hmm. that what right do you have to own my dramatic rights till perpetuity? Why? You know, that's like slavery, quite frankly, because now it's 20 years later. 
you know, it has a big cult following. I want it made. Where They own the dramatic rights, the film and TV. So you can't even do a remake of it? No, it's up to them. Is it's what up I mean. to them. Okay. Because they own the dramatic rights, film and TV. Why? That to me is it should be owned it for a period of time, but it's not set up that way. And anyone in the film business will tell you that's the reality of it. They own it. It's called their vault. So all these studios have their Wizard of Oz, whatever it is, is in their vault. <laughs> and when they feel like remaking it, they can do it. And I, I think that sort of reminds me of slavery, quite frankly. It's a horrible reality because at 20 years later, your celebration and, and is please, sweet. It has a huge cult following. These kids love this Cheetah Girls thing. They write me letters. They, oh, it's there's so many fan groups and blah, blah. And it's just, you know, it affected their lives. It was wonderful. So is there any way, even though they own the story? No, they own the dramatic rights. Dramatic rights. You own the story. I own the book rights. Okay. The book business is set up differently. You see the difference? Mm -hmm. The book rights, the author owns the book rights. Okay. And then you're just in an arrangement with the book company. And then let's say it stops printing. You can go to another book company. You see the difference? Yes. Okay. So, but they own the dramatic rights and, you know, where's my remake, please, because it's time. And Listen, I'm going to tell you this, you, from watching the Cheetah Girls movies, you were definitely ahead of your time in the conversations that were happening within the movie. How much of that movie reflected your real life? It was me. It was the childhood I wanted. Oh, this you'll love this little tidbit. So here I created this, right? It's I created it, fiction. I had been assigned to do a story for Essence on Destiny's Child. And I'd interviewed them before, but this time it was to go to Houston, their hometown. They were performing. And the Yvette Noel Shore was the publicist at the she was wonderful. Mm-hmm. But anyway, some three days there, we went shopping at the Galleria. You get it? Picking mm. up Papa Do's. Yes, you know the the um out they were teenagers they were wonderful whatever so you see how my mind is cranking and so part of it that's how it came up and they made the lead character galleria because her mother had bought her first pair of gucci shoes at that fabulous mall in houston it was me oh i had such fun shopping there and then i thought oh it'd be funny make her half black half italian oh oh yeah you know that's a city Make them from Bologna. And when you see Bologna on paper, it looks like Bologna. Bologna. Mm-hmm. O-L-O-G-N-A. So, oh, the kids will love that. So funny, right? <laughs> oh, yes. Franco Garibaldi, her father. Oh, 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 the black mother. I do a DNA test. Mm-hmm. When DNA became the breakthrough, which is, you may not know, state killer. Remember when they started breaking the cold cases because DNA had reached the level that they could identify people? Yes. Yes, I yes. was like, oh, my God, Golden State Killer, this man they've been looking for for 40 years. I can find out who my father was. Oh. And I did the DNA test and bingo, there it was. It said 50% Italian DNA. I was like, come on. <laughs> you see how the mind works? Yes, your my DNA, was it was all infused in you. Yes. Fashion and culture and all the things. And then, of course, when the genealogist, I found out, I did the whole, I had big matches on both sides, by the way. My mother, because don't forget, I didn't know my mother, but I knew she was Black because I had gotten my birth certificate. I'd sent away for it. You know, I'd search for her family. Okay, fine. 
But when the genealogists ran the Italian line, back in 1632, Sateria, a shop you go in and you go and get a suit made. Oh, the tailors. Sateria. Yes. So the genealogists even commented, because on the certificate of every person, it has your occupation. He said, look at this. You come from a long line of Sateria. He said, that's unusual. Usually you'll see lots of unskilled laborers because, you know, they work in the water, longshoremen, et cetera. So it's in my DNA, that whole thing. Sateria, you know, and it made sense. You know, I graduated from FIT and I started making, you know, the whole thing sort of put through. But I just thought that was hilarious that of all the things. That's amazing. Because I could have made her anything I wanted. And then, of course, you know, Dorinda's a foster child because I grew up in the system. Okay. The dog Toto, that's my dog. That was my dog. And <laughs> the Houston, the two twins being from Houston, it's because of that wonderful trip I had to Houston interviewing Destiny's Child and hanging out with Yvette Noel Shore. So it just all came together. It's all me. And of course, the singing, when I did do the maternal side search, I find through my first cousin, Robert Gregory. And he says, you know, of course, he said, Auntie Ruth. My mother's name was Ruth Gregory. He said, did you hear? So do you see? And I was always obsessed with the girl groups. I can't sing. And in the Cheetah Girl books, Dorothea, the mother, said, you know, Gallery explains about her mother. You know, my mother wanted to be a but she just didn't have the voice. She had the clothes and the personality. So you see how <laughs> Galleria was pushed towards singing because of her mother. But anyway, so it was all, to answer your question, it's all just parts of me. And then, of course, you know, it's set in New York because this is me in New York. And the cheetah clothes, I wore cheetah clothes since I'm a kid or, you know, whatever. So the, so the animal prick came before the cheetah girls. Oh, yeah. When I wrote for Essence, I was known as the leopard lady. And mm -hmm. I even had a column in Essence where I had the leopard outfit on. So leopard and cheetah, it's all the same. You know, me. it's all cat and mouth. Meow. So, um, <laughs> yes. Now, that's before how you write. started writing the cheetah girls, you, you're an award-winning contributing writer. I, was, uh, I wrote, wrote for, for Essence. Yeah. I was a staff writer. So I was a magazine writer, basically. That's what you call it. Or you could call it a journalist, too. Where did your love for writing come from? I'm not sure. Truthfully, the most sense to me. In the first foster home I was in, mm -hmm. my foster mother was illiterate. She could not read or write everything for her. So, and this was a mean person. I was very frightened of her. So if she had have said to me, dance, I think I would have answered. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it was that I saw intrinsically the value of this thing. She could not read or write anything. Mm -hmm. And so I read her letters. I wrote her letters. I did blah, blah. I think that, that this value placed on something because she definitely affected me, you know, in a big way, in every way. Mm -hmm. Even all my wounds, the trauma, everything. She was a very dominant person. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and when you're a foster child, you're very powerless. So this is the way I got a little better treatment because she needed me. And then, oh. by the way, when I was sewing, I made the clothes for her. That was the agreement. You know, I got my sewing machine 
truthfully, I got this man to buy me the sewing machine, okay? When I was 11, <laughs> my 12th birthday, I'm, I know, Lolita. Mm. But she didn't say anything. She said, you make me clothes. So as long as I made her clothes, she was happy. Could make whatever I wanted, you know, sewing. So you had the sewing skill as a child. Totally. That's oh. what I said. And then to see when the genealogist ran the DNA. Wow. It's in my DNA. It was in my DNA. And oh. then when I met my paternal first cousin, because you know, I came down to the finish line. My father was first generation Italian American. The DNA says Italian. So then you don't know if it means Italy or is it here? You don't know. You have to do the research. Mm-hmm. And my first cousin, Elizabeth Lampasona in New Jersey, you know, I finally. And as soon as I walk into her house in Jackson, New Jersey, right there to the left was a big black singer sewing machine on the pedestal. She said, that was my mother's, you know, my mother sewed and our grandmother was the head of the seamstress at the clothing factory in Brooklyn. So there it was, you know. So your family was literally all the way around you and you had no idea. No idea. And, you know, one of the sad things I have to deal with little by little, you know, I modeled in Italy. This explains why I had such a natural feeling towards it because I am half Italian. And I wish I had known that because I've gone to Italy since the DNA. I met Uh, part of the line, meaning my cousins in Toro del Greco. That's where my grandfather was from. And he's buried there. He left and went back. And so it would have been great if I had known this, you know, years ago, but I didn't. So. Well, you did, you did know, you just weren't conscious that you knew it, but your spirit knew that this was home for you. Oh yeah, totally. That's amazing. Yeah. So let me ask you this. You've talked a lot about your time in foster care, but I wanted to ask a question because I grew up in a, I'm always curious because I grew up in an abusive household and I know that that puts a lot of trauma that many people don't understand. Do you think that we, and I know everybody talks about mental health now and getting therapy, but do you actually think that we heal from trauma and our past, or do you believe that we just get a deeper understanding? No, I am a good, I'm the best person to ask that question. Okay. Okay. Because you're talking about firsthand, I was almost dead. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about that a therapist saved my life. Mm-hmm. I, the fortunate thing was that I found a therapist. She was the perfect therapist for me. Mm-hmm. And this woman worked. She was beyond committed in helping heal me. It was a long process. You're never fully healed. But there is tremendous healing that could be done through therapy, the church, whatever other experiences, put it all together and you can heal part of all of the trauma. And quite frankly, the reparations to Black Americans should be free therapy. Where is it? Because that is a necessity. Mm-hmm. And therapy saved my life. My life was almost over by the time I got to her. I was 21, 22 years old. You know, close to death from the drugs and therapy is the reason why I'm here. It's because of that because otherwise I'd be dead. That's as simple as that. So do yes, there is help. You can heal channels, put them together, commit to doing the healing and whatever it is, maybe for you, but put the therapy in the equation. You need the therapy. Then you could have support groups, Whatever else you could put together, you cobble it, 
and you will have some transformations. You know, nature made us and there is an ability to heal within the structure of things. We do have the ability to recover. Of course, you never forget. And that will always be with you till you die, whatever the things that you went through. Mm-hmm. But they do not have to come. They destroy your life. No, they don't. You can get some healing. So in your moments of dealing with real life and then Hollywood life, where did you get the courage to really take on the world in such a way? I was in therapy. therapy. I was in therapy. Mm -hmm. It's because of her. Because that almost killed me. So here I go through all this trauma growing up in the system. I aged out at 18. I've been on my own since I'm 18. And it's horrible. I mean, the trauma is unbelievable. And so here I heal enough that I become a writer. And then to see the reality of the world, it almost killed me. What goes mm-hmm. on with this, with the writing in Hollywood almost killed me. I was just so broken by seeing what these people are doing. Mm-hmm. Robbing writers, quite frankly, just call it what it is. You know, we call criminals criminal. That's criminal behavior, what they're doing. Stealing wealth from the creator. I mean, when you think about it, yes, the, the actor's getting 20 million or whatever. Do you see they're not robbing them? Right. They have to show up. <laughs> That's what it is. And so they're in a better position. Mm-hmm. They can't rob them. They've got to do the publicity. They've got their name out there. So, yeah, Groom was another one. When you talk about Forrest Gump, the success of that film-wise, mm-hmm. what did he get? Nothing. And the man worked for 10 years on the novel. Got twenty million dollars. Do you see the difference? You know what Winston Groom got three hundred thousand. That's for life. And what's that after taxes and the attorney, the IRS, the attorney, the agent? That's a. And that's for life. This man put his life into that work. So of course, like I said, you're getting some money from the books, but the book money is nothing. Everybody knows that, unless it's better, of course. But now, could you could you turn Cheetah Girls into an audio series? Yeah, of course. You mean the book thing? Anything to do with the books I could do, but, you know, depends on the movie. So if there was a remake, I could go to town. You know, if there was a another remake of the movie boot, I'd go get another book deal, audio, you know, i do the whole thing without question. I own the rights, you know. Mm-hmm. But at this point, you know, what's the point? No. Now you talked about your bestie, Beverly Johnson. And you met while modeling in Italy. Yes. Now, let me ask you this. Now, the book I would love to read. <laughs> oh, yes. Adventures of Beverly and Mama Cheetah taking on the fashion industry in New York. <laughs> well, I could just tell you that I do plan to write a novel. Okay. And the novel will be infused with some things. I mean, what I could do, the best thing that could happen to me is to heal enough from this whole thing and write a great story. Mm-hmm. That is the looking forward. And and it's possible. I could do that. And I would love to see that story because you both are two iconic figures and oh, have and there are dealt- stories, trust me. Ooh, I can't look, listen. <laughs> the stories we know and the stories we'll never know. But I just and we don't see like we see sex in the city and we see all these stories, but we oh, yeah, never which see, was great. which is amazing. 
but we never see our stories happening in New York during those times. I must tell you, City, the thing where they went wrong, and I would never do. You know how important you just told me about your background. Yes. And so when you see a person, here you have these characters, and the most one of the most important factors is their family, where yes. they came from. Did you notice you knew almost nothing about Carrie Bradshaw? At all. Not good writing. Because oh. she was who she was because of where she came from. But you had no idea. And that, to me, I would never do. Because you know, because you just asked me a very important question. Of all the questions you asked me, you asked me about that trauma thing. Mm -hmm. So you know how much the foundation of every person is where they came from. Yes. Their development years from 18 years old. You can't shake that foundation. It's there. And it causes you to do all sorts of things. And it could cause you to do all sorts of bad things unless you get help. Because you will just repeat. That's all it is. It's generational trauma, you know. Mm -hmm. And what we have as Black people is generational trauma from slavery. Generation down to generation. Thought when I found my mother's family. Mm -hmm. These people were marginal. One step above, as far as I could see, slavery. Do you know that out of, she was 13 brothers and sisters. Do you know that, and the cousins, I had big DNA matches on my maternal side. Not one person had a photo of my mother. I wanted oh, a photo of wow. my mother. Mm -hmm. Is that too much to ask? They couldn't supply that. And I mean, they really couldn't. They really didn't have it. And mm -hmm. one cousin match, the first cousin match, snapped in the message. He said, photos. He said, these people, let alone take photos. And what do you want a photo for anyway? You're writing a book? That was our last exchange, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it funny how we can just cut people off? It's like, oh, nope, not going there. <laughs> oh, yeah, but because they knew who I was. Yeah. You know, when they knew who I was and they had never contacted me. And so it was just very sad. But that's the person in North Carolina, tobacco. Nick Gregory, my grandfather, worked for a sharecropper, tobacco. And then you get it? And his brother, Amos Gregory, was a bootlegger. You know, whatever, moonshine. Whatever. Now, were you related to Dick Gregory? No, but I guess what I'm thinking. What? My research. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think I am because, you know. But in this research, there was a Gregory plantation. So I bet you his line and my maternal line came from that plantation. Where did that Gregory? It's a British name. So that's what I'm. Yeah, because there's not too many Gregories as a last name. No, and there was a Gregory plantation. So just do the math. That's pretty easy. And you all have very much a similar personality. <laughs> you just oh, say it like it is. Oh, you want to hear something <laughs> hilarious? So on my bell, on my door outside, it says D Gregory, D period Gregory. So one night at two in the morning, my bell rings. So I look out into, it's a glass front door. I see a big black guy standing there. So I'm not opening. I yell. I said, "What? Do you, can I help you? He said, is this the Dick Gregory Bahamian diet? Oh. I said, oh no, you ringing my bell at two in the morning. You don't need a diet. You need a psychiatrist. <laughs> <Go with my laughs> That so, was Dick Gregory um, telling you your cousins. <laughs> and, you know, for, for all I know, but from what I could see, because don't forget, I did talk to family members 
Henderson, North Carolina, from doing the research. Mm-hmm. And no, I didn't see a direct line connection cousin wise, uh, mm-hmm. but that Gregory, I think that's the connection right there. Because you don't meet a lot of people with the last name Gregory, you know, black people. Mm-mm. Oh, by the way, in doing the DNA test on the maternal side, that's the black side. One surprise. Do you know New York one Cheryl Wills? You know, she's an anchor, the dark skinned, pretty black woman who's the anchor on New York one news. Mm-mm. You never watch New York one. I'm not in I'm in St. Louis. Oh, there you go. Because it's very popular here, the local. She's my cousin. Oh, wow. You found out that through the DNA? Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. She was one of my matches. But um, And I'd met her several times for my writing. You know, she wrote a book. She's very into the entry. And she had written a book about her family from North Carolina, whatever. And she's a gorgeous, dark-skinned Black woman. And as you know, in terms of anchors, we have very few. So she's very prominent. Mm-hmm. And New York is the local. New York one is the local news station here. Mm-hmm. So, And I had met her. So I sent her a message on Ancestry. I met her maybe two, three times once we even did a book signing together. <laughs> and so, you know, very lovely woman. And so then I messaged her and answered. I said, is this Cheryl Wills that I know? She said, yes. Hey, cousin. Hey. <laughs> you know, so she's very into you know, and uh, so it's a fifth to eighth cousin. When you realize that once slavery ended, you had 4 million Black people who were freed. And then, of course, there are the other people that had already been freed. Right. And there's those who escaped. But you're still talking about a very finite pool, gene pool. Yes. As opposed to other people's gene pool. So, you know, you're related to a lot of people. Yes, know? very much so. Have Now, have you been to the continent? To Africa? Yes. No, never. You never wanted to go? Well, I never had any reason. I haven't traveled much. Every All my travel has been related to work. You know, I go to the islands for fun. You know, okay. those are places I love going to the islands, but no. And you know what's so funny? Beverly is trying to push me to go to Senegal in June because her friend, Wendy, the dermatologist, is getting married. I said, oh. I don't know, girl, because, you know, I've had this surgery, the gastric bypass, so I don't want to... I'm saving the coins for any plastic surgery I'm going to need. Because <laughs> you know you're going to need plastic surgery, of course. Yes. You, know you got to tighten mean, it all back up. <laughs> well, well, arm left. Come on. Come on now. You know it's coming. So how are your workouts going? Oh, it's so hard. I'm going to work out. I work out twice a week, about two hours each time. Oh, please. You know, I'm working out. So it's a commitment I made, but I'm not into that. And you see these people, honey, they got their little outfits on. They are very into that. I have Everything never... coordinated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, I belong to Crunch. So they have a big gay population. So those are cute. But those girls be showing up in those outfits. Now, with inclusion being such an important topic now, which it wasn't that big of a deal back in the 90s and the early 2000s, how would you write the Cheetah Girl story now? Well, if you notice, had in the Cheetah Girls, and I would still do the same in anything I write, notice there's always a blending in mine. Yes. You know, there's a blending of the cultures a little bit. That's how I roll. Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be some, you know, because I grew up in the Bronx and, and Latin people make up such a big part of the population, you know, mm-hmm. in the world. So yes. I always try to give them a shout out. 
and this one's from that. So it would just be the same because that's how I am. I'm going to include as many different people in the mix with, of course, the Black characters being central. And that's how I roll. I never would do it totally Black or totally white. That's not me at mm -hmm. all. So for me, it's the same. It'd be the same story? Yeah, same blending. Yeah. What was it like having Whitney Houston as a producing partner? Oh, she's wonderful. Now, don't forget, I was the writer on the Waiting to Exhale cover story for Essence. I was in Phoenix for the four days. Mm -hmm. So that was the second time I'd interviewed her. So don't forget, and she had a very high regard for Essence. Yes. Because, you know, she was under attack a lot in the press and she made it very clear, I remember. She didn't trust the media whatsoever. And uh, she's great, you know. And Gordon Chambers, who was the entertainment editor, he had a relationship with her, as I recall, with the music. You know, Gordon wrote a lot of songs. He went on to write Grammy Award winning songs. Mm -hmm. So to be honest with you, in terms of the Cheetah Girls being made, finally, as you know, they optioned it and optioned it. And then finally, it's because, you know, they option everything and they don't make half of anything. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for her, it wouldn't have been made. She oh, pushed wow. Them. Yeah. She pushed them. She said, you promised me and you are making this. <laughs> so originally it was supposed to be a TV series and they backed out because, you know, you have in the film and TV world, you have a partner, foreign. Mm -hmm. This is how the business is set up now because it's so much money involved. And they're putting up part of the money. He's your partner. And so their Disney's partner was Asia. So they came back and told us that the Asia told them, oh, we can't sell no show with black girls. You know, mm. we can't. And so then they backed out of, because it was originally supposed to be a TV series. Okay. They backed out. And then Whitney pressured them. So they gave her that movie for her. And when it did so well, then they're on board, of course. But... If it wasn't for Whitney, the option just would have run out. It was the third year of the option. You know, your option per year. Yes. You know, these film TV, they take an option for a year and then another year and then the third year. And the option would have just ran out. And then that means that I could have then shopped it to someone else. But who was going to make it? You get my point. Mm -hmm. So, But she pushed them and they gave her the movie, released that $10 million for the first movie because of her. They gambled. She pushed them. She said, you promised me and you are doing it. Oh, because this was a pet thing for her. Mm. To get a TV show made about a group of girls in a singing group. And she had had the option. Quincy Jones had originally been one of the, and all the networks or whatever, and it never happened. And then the girls got too old. It was a group of girls that she had met and I think they were sisters and cousins. I think they were related, actually. And she loved them, but she had wanted that story. So this was a very much close to her heart, this idea of this kid-girl group kind of thing. So, and again, I mean it 100%. If it wasn't for her, it wouldn't have got made. Because that's how they are. They just, you know, with Black projects, I mean. Mm -hmm. You know, move on. And then, like I said, here I am sitting at 20 years with that absolute... 100% success rate of it. And you still haven't remade it? Why? It could. It's definitely a contemporary story. No, but do you get my point? The yeah. remake, you make it contemporary, whatever. But my point is, why? Is it because it was a Black project? I mean, they're just, you know, too much for me.
<laughs> you know, these Hollywood people. So what are you working on now? Now I'm working on going to the gym. Okay. And, <laughs> and as I said, I want to get the focus on getting this food thing dealt with. And then I'm going to see what comes out of it. My feeling is it'll be another story. The story that's been in my mind for years about this girl. And of course she wears leopard clothes. You know that. Of course. I re- Let me tell you my full circle moment with you. Oh, but it's adult, by the way. Uh, please, because I'd like some grown women's stories. <laughs> yeah. It'll be about reinvention. It will be about reinvention because it's such an important part of so many people's lives. Mm-hmm. that They are forced, they're back against the wall to grow and to change, to reinvent themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's what this girl will be doing. And, you know, leopard changing their spot. So it's in my mind, this story. So go ahead. What were you going to say? So, well, I was going to tell you a story, but I have a question first. How do you go about reinventing yourself? Like, what is your journey of self-discovery? What tools do you use? How do you go through the process? Therapy was the big thing. Therapy. I changed myself dramatically. Therapy. That's what was my big tool. And also 12-step programs, as you know what they are, right? Mm -hmm. 12-step programs, honey. And there's one for everything. You know, you shop too much too much, you drink too much, you eat too much <laughs> fentanyl, you gamble too much, there's a 12-step program for you. And you know, they have great success and it's free and you get support. So I reinvented myself all the time. And now this, getting the gastric surgery, and you know, I have so many tools now inside me, but getting the gastric, but what's going to come is another reinvention. That's obvious. Mm. You know, you don't shed a hundred pounds and be the same person. I right. will be a And so that's what's coming. So are you planning for that person or are you just going to allow it to evolve? I'm allowed. I think what's obvious is there's a story in there. Mm -hmm. There will be a story that will say, will push that it has to come out. That will be part of it. And I will change in certain ways because I have to. And, uh, but we'll see. I'm leaving it open-ended because I want to see what I will become. The next reinvention. You know, and you know it's coming. Yes, of course. The minute you take a step to change, mm-hmm. you are turning your will over. You're surrendering to the reality that you don't know what's going to come, but you have faith that this is the right thing to do. Whatever it is, whether it's getting out of a bad marriage, mm-hmm. leaving a horrible career, you know, facing a child trauma, whatever it is that you decide. What means is that you will change and you are open. You have the courage to face it and you don't know what's coming. You really don't. So what commitments do you have to make to yourself to stay on target? Well, the commitment that I will always grow. That was the commitment I made the second I stepped into that therapist's office when I was 22 and that commitment still with me. That's why I finally woke up, you know, when that doctor said, oh, so so you have diabetes too now. He said, you're lucky, you know, it could have caught up with you before because, you know, I've been overweight for a long time. That second, you know, I surrendered. I was like, that's it for me. Mm -hmm. The diabetes diagnosis, 295, which is very close to 300, I surrendered. And then I took steps to fix this 400-pound gorilla that's been over my neck the whole time I've been a writer. You know, that's when the food thing kicked in, quite frankly. Was food your vice? Obviously, it was how I coped. With how you coped. 
mm-hmm. just all the pressure, the childhood pressure, the trauma. And, you know, I was, but this was, it's an addiction. I finally faced that because, you know, you hit bottom. Some people have a bigger bottom, a lower bottom. And, you know, I've been through this many times already with different things. So I surrendered. It's like whatever is in front of me can't be worse than this, you know? Because mm-hmm, you've been through so much. Do. Yeah, that's what you do. It, it doesn't solve the problem, you know? How do you keep your optimism through all of this? It's not optimism, it's faith. You know, we're born from nature. And nature has supplied each of us inside with the spirit, a spiritual realm. And you tap into that because we are emotional, physical, and spiritual beings. That's how we were created by whatever you want to call it. I call it the force be with you. Some people (laughs) call it God. Some people call it Allah. I never see it as a person. I see it more as this expansive force Mm -hmm. that created all of this. It's inside of every single person. That's what makes you a human being. So to tap into that. How do you tap into your force? Meditation okay. is part of it. Going to the support groups, like I said, therapy, any way you do, you tap into it. Through other people, people, you know, they mirror because they all have it. Mm-hmm. And that's how you do it. When you were young, I mean, oh, the... <laughs> it was horrible. And and I'm I'm not saying this because of Cheetah Girls, but it was such a big explosive entity. Is this something you envisioned as a kid or as no. a young person? Okay. No, I mean I wrote, but no, the only thing I envisioned was getting out of foster care. That was okay. my big goal in life. Mm-hmm. You know, as a child, that's all you could think: how to get out of foster care. Mm-hmm. That was my big fantasy. Escaping. <laughs> Was your imagination a part of your escapism? Well, no, I'm a creative person. So you know, like person. I said, there I am writing, making clothes or whatever. But, you know, it's very limited because I was suffering so much. So I didn't think about things, if that's what you're asking. No, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to be a writer. No, I'm going to be anything. All you could think is I'll get out of foster care. That was my big goal in life. Now, what was the first article that you read when you went into the magazine, not read, wrote, when you went into the magazine world? You won't believe this. I was taking the GRE, the exam to get into graduate school. Okay. And I was working at New Look Magazine, you know, as an editorial assistant. My boss was great, Robert Hoffler. He was gay. He was great. He said, what are you doing? I said, oh, because I was exhausted. I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the GRE so I could get into graduate school. He said, you want to write? He <laughs> said, then why don't you write an article? And if I like it, I'll buy it. That's what happened. Wow. And the first article I wrote was about Tina Turner and her wigs. It was called What's Wigs Got to Do With It? <laughs> and he loved it. it. He bought it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So- yeah, that was the first article. And he bought, I think I got like $300. <laughs> and it was a picture of her with the purple wig. Remember, she wore those wigs, yes. mm-hmm. but, you know, when she reinvented herself. Yes. She had that look. And that's what it was. And I wrote, it may, maybe it was called What's Love Got to Do With It? But then it, it was about her wigs, you know. Amazing. And, Amazing. Yeah, that was the first article. What was your journey to Essence Magazine? Oh, well, I was freelance writing. I 
got my journey. Oh, my God. I remember it exactly now. If you notice the character Dorothea in the Cheetah Girls, she has a plus size boutique, Toto in New York, fun mm-hmm. and larger sizes. That was my boutique. Oh, wow. So Dorothea was me. Now, of course, you know, in the movie, they made a regular size, Lynn Whitfield, who was my friend, by the way. And that was fine since she was my friend. But, you know, she was, it was supposed to represent the plus size diva. Okay, fine. I had this wonderful boutique on West Broadway in Soho, Toto in New York, fun and larger sizes. And Ionia Dunley, the fashion editor of Essence, used to come into the boutique to borrow clothes. She loved the clothes for editorial. Mm. It was always about regular size. You know, they just kept everything in the mix. Yes. And so, and I badgered her about writing. And finally, they called me in. Ionia and Mickey Taylor, the beauty editor, and they asked me to write an article, which I did, and then they hired me. And I was, it was freelance. I was the fashion and beauty writer. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. It's just like you just, when you connect all the dots, it's just like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you had a deep belief in yourself over all things. And you might not have felt it, but clearly from the way that your life has unfolded. There was always that within you. So this is a story where we come full circle. Okay. My first time I went to London, it was 1999. Oh! And it was my first trip to London. I was there in 2000. Go ahead. Well, this was, well, maybe it was 2000, but I met you. I was oh my locked- God. So it was 2000. I was staying with Anna Schultz, the plus size clothing designer. I was walking to Harrods department store. And I went to Harrods. Yes. So we passed each other. Okay. 2000, 2000. 2000. And I walked past you and you were the most gorgeous thing I had ever seen in my life. I had never seen a curvy girl look so sexy. And so I stopped you in the street and I was like, oh my God, you were, I was just like, you were so beautiful because I'd never seen a curvy girl look so exquisite. And you said, I'm promoting my book. You handed me a flyer and yes. it was a cheetah girl flyer. And then you got into one of those London cabs. It was black and the door opened from the other side. Yes. And I was just staring at you. <laughs> oh my God. And I was staying with Anna Schultz. You ever heard of Anna Schultz? I have. Yes. So she was my friend and that's who I was staying. I was staying at her house in Notting Hill. Notting Hill. Yes. Yes. And so um, I went to Harrods. She had a whole department in Harrods with her plaque. And I went to see it. And I was staying at her apartment, her flat, as you call it. And I went into I Harrods. Like and Harrods was the only store that treated me well as a Black woman. Oh, but that, remember you had to pay to use the bathroom? Yes! Oh. <laughs> I was like, I need a change to go to the bathroom. I'd never heard of that uh, before. I know. But, and then, but they had these books, these fashion books. Mm-hmm. And so I, they were like, oh, take it with you. I had a hand. I was walking down the streets with this handful of fashion books. But yes. And so after I met you, I was like, I went home and changed my whole wardrobe. Because you had on a leopard print skirt and a leopard print top. It was ah. like pencil length with a slit on the side. I remember it vividly. And I went home and I was looking for leopard print everywhere. <laughs> 
I said, I didn't know curvy girls could be sexy. So it yes. totally changed how I dressed, how I looked at myself and everything. That one, I think it was all a brief, brief, brief meeting, but it was so impactful. Cool. And that's when I became a fan of you. And so, like I said, I'm much older than the cheetah girl crowd, but you made a very big impact to me in that moment. So when you said yes to this, I was so excited. <laughs> it's like, I can't wait oh, to tell this story. So touching. I have to tell Anna, you know, I email her, you know, sometimes, you know, she's still, I know it's hard, but she is 21 years in business. You know, she makes those, you know, it's AnnaSchultz.com. She sells, as you know, to Harrods. She's big in Europe. Yes. You know, she tried to get into the United States market, but you know, it's hard. Yes. Size still. Can you believe it? Like Salon Z, she got it to their, you know, Saxon Avenue Salon Z. But, you know, they apparently it's kind of hard, meaning with the paybacks or the this, you know, again, business practices that don't work for the the supplier. Mm -hmm. So she kind of gave up on. She does, you know, well, and she's still in business for herself with the thing. She's German, by the way. Mm. And she ended up in London because she went to Rhodes Design School. And after college, she stayed there. She stayed. Yes, she loves London. Now, would you ever design a collection of clothing these days? No, I had the Toto in New York. That was my design. That was amazing. It was before my time. It was before the clothes were too wild, like I said, but Ionia came in. And then I stopped that and I became a writer. Started as the fashion beauty writer, but the clothing is, it's a part of my life now. So well, I'll uh, tell you what, I would love to see a Deborah Gregory collection because you can never have oh, totally. too much animal print. No, remember Cheetah Rama. Remember, my brand is called Cheetah Rama. Cheetah Rama. And I have an Etsy shop. Remember, I have a shop on Etsy.com. It's cheetahrama.etsy.com. That's to my shop. I make fabulous things. Oh, and I can't I wait to go Etsy. check it out. Yes, I have an Etsy shop. But yes, so it would be Cheetah Rama by Deborah Gregory. You know, that would be the line because that's already my brand. You know, so yes, of course, I could in a second make clothes, but you know. Well, I'm going to put that out in the universe because you're right. you never have but enough animal still, print in your wardrobe. <laughs> there's still not enough fabulous plus size clothing. They try a little bit, but it's still not fabulous, you know. Especially for the grown woman who doesn't necessarily oh, no. want everything hanging out, but yeah. you still want to be sexy. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. But I, you know, I shop on torrid.com, lanebryant.com, mm-hmm. but there's uh, com. but there's still nothing too fat. And Anna Schultz, obviously, because she has such great taste, and our tastes are similar, by the way. You know, she likes, she loves leopard. It's always in her collection and she loves bright colors or, you know, she's got great style sensibility, but that's it. You know, it's just not a lot of options, you know, for us. So how are you going to celebrate this 20 year milestone? I haven't thought about it. You know, the articles, you know, written people have contacted me and you'll know there's something on Buzzfeed. There was something in Daily Beast, you know, people have done it, but no, I'm not celebrating because, like I said, where is my remake? Mm. That's celebrating, you know. That so, would be the celebration. No, n- nothing to celebrate on that end because where's my remake? Thank you. <laughs> but what I will celebrate is when I finish this year of transformation, I will be celebrating that for sure. 
I can tell you that. Well, I am excited for all of your successes because you were truly- And by the way, mm. you know that I did do signings in St. Louis or you didn't know that. No, I didn't. Oh, yes. You know, I've been, when I did the Cheetah Girls signings all over the country, it would be whoever invited me. Okay. And I was invited twice to St. Louis. I ate at Sweetie Pie's. I got a photo, I remember. Oh, my goodness. Yes, but let's say it was a bookstore. Another time it was a college, but okay. twice. I was in St. Louis twice. We do have a lot of authors that come here. And we yeah. have a great library. Whoever sent for me, you know, they send for you. you mm-hmm. know, they pay the, the airfare the hotel and whatever it was. I remember twice I was in St. Oh, and I remember taking a picture under Josephine Baker way. Cause you know, oh, that. Yes. and I remember that and eating at sweetie pies and, you know, just having a great time twice, two times. <laughs> We're a great city. New Yorkers love St. Louis. Oh yeah. <laughs> Every so, New Yorker I know loves St. Louis. We yeah, have totally. culture and, and style and all the things. And we even have a fa- fashion district downtown. Yeah. So. And I know that a lot of fashion people before the lockdown were coming here, looking at all of our warehouse spaces uh-huh. to open up manufacturing here. So yeah. hopefully now the, I, the idea will come I, back. I know why maybe you didn't hear because both of those events, they were closed events. They weren't open to the public. Right. You're probably at WashU or one of the colleges. What uh, they were they were for one of them was for the college, you mm-hmm. know, speaking. I remember it was a panel with the book signing, and the other one was like some girls. It was a girls, a nonprofit organization that was for girls. Okay. And and I remember they gave them little gift bags after. So it was a private thing. Well okay. very, very nice. So that's maybe why you didn't know. <laughs> I was there. Oh, I would have been there. I've been like, exactly. (laughs) But I met Sweetie Pie. That was a big thing. Oh, hey. Came over to my table. Oh, hi. She introduced herself. Took a photo. I heard about that latest scandal, something with the son, right? Oh, my God. Her son. Yes. Mm -hmm. Terrible, 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 terrible. Listen, Dollface, I got to get to the gym. Yes. So we're going to say, listen, I'm going to let you get to the gym because you were on a mission. Yes. And I don't want to impede any of that, but this has been a true pleasure yes. and an honor. And so cast will air or it's airing soon, right? Yes. It'll be yes. out this month. Yes. Okay, great. So you'll this let me... month or early May. And I will let you know, and I will send you all of the information. Yes. And so that you can do whatever you do with it. And I, yes. I appreciate, but let me tell you. This has been an honor and you are a true inspiration, not just to me, but to girls and women everywhere, because you have lived a life and you live it well. And I'm excited to see your transformation, but know that you were already a treasure to the world. So thank you for joining the podcast. And I hope to speak with you again. Yes. And as we say, growl power forever. Growl power forever. Yes. Wow. Stay delicious, girl. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to Black Women Amplified. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and log on to blackwomenamplified.com for more information. Keep shining.